You know, we have um, often this tremendous sense of selfhood, which is so tied into this notion of being in control. Like, I've thought about it really carefully, and I've decided never to fall asleep while meditating again. You know, but if conditions come together, you know, you haven't slept all night, or it's, you know, 120 degrees in the room, or, you know, whatever. When conditions come together for something to arise, it will arise. You'll get sleepy. How you then deal with it is a very big question. But to imagine you could have stopped it, to imagine it's all your fault that it arose to begin with is really pretty strange. And look at where we take it. You know, I've decided never to die. You know, I've decided I've suffered enough. No more grief, no more fear. When uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, whom Mark also mentioned last night, was one of the uh, first Tibetan lamas um, in our time to come to the West and begin teaching, uh, I'm sure it was very odd for him, you know, having left Tibet, living in India, coming here, sort of being exposed to the kind of range of our psychological states. And um, he had a, a, a favorite saying, many times people would come and tell him some story about what they were experiencing, and he would look at them and say, good luck. (laughs) You know, so I kind of think of it like that, like, I've decided no more suffering, you know, well, good luck. (laughs) So there is something tremendous, really, in learning how to hear that knock, open the door, to greet what is arising with wisdom, with understanding, with some kind of, it's actually a compassion, it's like a tenderness. There's a a Tibetan saying, um, Tibetan teaching, where they suggest looking at the various thoughts that come up in your mind as though you were a quite elderly person sitting in a playground watching children play. And I really love that example because I love the tenderness that's implied in that and also the perspective. You know, you watch this little kid freaking out over a broken shovel and you're not disdainful, you know, or cruel. You don't say, idiot, it's just a shovel, you know. The kid's two years old. That's what two-year-old kids do. But there's understanding also. There's perspective. There's that spaciousness along with the, the tenderness. So to understand these forces are just visiting. The mind is naturally radiant and pure. Can we develop that ability to see all of these visitors as visitors, to understand their nature, to greet them with some kind of tenderness and care? There's some... Um, teachings um, which in extremely, extremely simplified form um, would translate as something like um, 
when you see that visitor, that force of defilement arise, and it knocks at the door, you know, invite it in. Not to take over, but like for a little meal or something, you know. Like keep company with it for a little while so you're not so afraid of it. Now, of course, this is a very delicate thing because you don't want it to take over. At the same time, you don't want to be hastily pushing it away. So I once suggested it actually was here. I I was teaching and I suggested it, um, that, that kind of teaching, and someone didn't like it. And they said, how about tea to go? <laughs> and <clears throat> I said, sure, <laughs> tea to go. That's fine. You know, and we do actually find a balance, each of us at different times, for ourselves. You know, are we tending to forget who actually lives there? Are we tending to get lost? Do we need to be a little bit firmer? Not rude, <laughs> but just a little bit firmer. Or are we tending to be so afraid and just pushing away in a way that isn't working? You know, do we need to be a little more relaxed and open, saying, okay, this is what's visiting right now. It's just a visitor. This is the first visionary statement of the Buddha. The second um, is one I talked about uh, earlier when I quoted uh, this very famous saying of the Buddha, when he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. This statement is used within Buddhist teaching in a lot of different ways. It's used to illuminate the truth that sometimes the path to the end of suffering is right through the suffering. It's through being there. It's opening to it. It's acknowledging it. It's loving ourselves anyway. So it's used as a a kind of invitation to use the painful experiences that we have for a, a greater understanding of the end of suffering. But it's also used... Um, almost as this kind of grid, I guess you could say, or system of looking at our own states and the states of others. So, for example, as we look within and we see all these various forces that arise within us, rather than calling them good or bad or right or wrong or, you know, wonderful and terrible, we look at things in terms of being skillful or unskillful. Skillful is that which leads to the end of suffering. And so we see a state like compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, metta, wisdom, mindfulness, lead to the end of suffering. And when we do see that whole range of defilements, it's not as defilements, it is as torments of the mind. We understand that being lost and consumed by jealousy and anger and fear and greed and that whole long list is really tremendous suffering. And so when we look at ourselves, um, we can see suffering as suffering, which is actually an important accomplishment to see suffering as suffering, to see pain as pain. 
not to call it bad and wrong and terrible. Because one, we can make that translation and see it actually as suffering. Then the, the natural response is some kind of compassion rather than rejection and disdain and um, dislike and all of those states. And just as we practice that looking at our own situation, our own experiences internally, we also make that translation externally because it's true. We understand the nature of anger and fear in all of those states from within as being states of suffering, and we know that is true for others as well. And so there is a different sensibility about how we respond. You know, and just as a, another note to that, compassion doesn't mean weakness. It doesn't mean giving in. It doesn't mean having a compassionate response to someone else's suffering. It doesn't mean that we don't perhaps try to make a change, maybe take very strong action to try to make change but it's coming from a different place. That's what it means. So to say that one's natural response, whether looking within or or outside of ourselves, is one of compassion, doesn't imply that we become inert or passive or weak in any way. So this is the... Second statement of the Buddhas, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. And then the third is that very simple one that we've mentioned also before, which is that all beings everywhere want to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. And that is not a problem, actually, So many times we see our own urge for happiness and we feel kind of squeamish about it or timid about it as though we didn't deserve to be happy or it wasn't right to want to be happy as though that was egotistical and ambitious and greedy and all of those things. But in fact, that urge toward happiness is not like some terrible affliction or or problem Because when that urge toward happiness is combined with wisdom about where happiness is actually to be found rather than with ignorance, it becomes like a homing instinct for freedom and we can cut through many obstacles. It's true and appropriate and wise to want to be happy. But why compromise? Why settle for a very meager kind of happiness? that is so transient, that's so impermanent, that is so, in a way, untested, you know, that is told to us by others rather than born through our own experience and our own deep investigation as to where happiness is to be found. Sometimes I tell the story about this time. Many years ago, I went to Israel to teach, and it was, um, you know, it was a peaceful time there. It was a really wonderful time to be there. And um, a friend of mine had an apartment in Jerusalem, so I stayed there for a few weeks before the retreat began. And 
I would often go wandering through the old city in um, the marketplace, and it's you know just like this series of narrow alleyways that is just teeming with life, with you know colors and sounds and goods for sale. And um, one day I was just walking along through this uh, series of streets when I heard this merchant call out to me, oh, I have what you need. And I stopped, and it was like this thrill went through my entire body. (laughs) And I thought, wow, he has what I need. I turned to go there, and then I thought, wait a minute. First of all, I don't need anything. Second of all, how would he know he has what I need? But I believed it, and I believed it so utterly for that moment. And, you know, we live in a world where that voice is calling out to us all of the time. I have what you need, and I have what you need, and I have what you need. And we get dizzy from responding to each of these different voices in turn. We get exhausted because they're pretty constant. And when we incorporate that feeling into our sense of who we are, then we do have that sense that I need something. I need to have something I don't have. I don't have enough. I am not enough. And so we, we walk down that path of constant acquisition, of experience, of objects, all kinds of things. The problem is not in wanting to be happy. The problem is not having a very, usually, a very clear sense of where happiness is to be found. And so, we need to pay attention. It's not really someone else's answer to that question that is most important. It's our own. It's not even the Buddha's answer to that question that's most important, except to the Buddha. But we need to really look, and we will see the nature of happiness and sorrow. Holding on, pushing away, letting go, being with. It's all there for our exploration. So we need to, in some ways, uh, really cherish and rejoice in that urge toward happiness. And that, in so many ways, is the basis for the metta practice. All beings want to be happy, if we only knew how. So can we affirm that wish? May you be happy. May it, in fact, be accomplished The path toward happiness, as laid out by the Buddha, has a lot of different components. They all support one another. They all um, reinforce one another. And this is something, you know, not just to be taken as truth, but really to be investigated, to be explored, to see the nature of living in a certain way and using your mind, using your awareness in a certain way, 
And through that experiment, through putting it into practice, understanding what the results might in fact be. The almost like the foundation um, of that path is morality or ethics. It's having a, a way of being in the world that is based on remembering what we really care about more than anything. The Buddha said, I think, quite beautifully, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. And many times as we do recollect the things we've done that haven't been so great or so wonderful or the things we've said or the things we haven't said when maybe it would have been really good um, to say something, we can see how much of that discordance, that being out of harmony, comes from a, a certain lack of loving ourselves. And we feel the pain of that. That's very genuine. The path of morality isn't like punitive and it's not um, something gruesome. It's it's about having a conviction about compassion for ourselves so that we do not suffer from being out of harmony and compassion for others, having some sense of linkage to others. There's so many ways we can understand this. Having one's actions reflect one's values. When we make a mistake, as we will, you know, when we uh, say something or do something that is not in harmony with what we really believe to be important, being able to begin again. Having a sense of clarity. Oh yeah, you know, that really hurt. I'm going to try again. It's not anything more punitive than that. It's not about disliking oneself or um, hating oneself, but really bringing one's life into a more seamless whole. Many years ago, um, when we first started teaching here, not here, I think it was before IMS even, um, we brought over one of our teachers from India, and we were very proud of kind of the burgeoning spiritual communities around the country that had just started to to grow. So we brought him to all these different places in America, and, you know, at, at the end of this tour, we, we said kind of proudly, what do you think, you know? Isn't it great? And And he said, yeah, you know, it really is great. He said, there's just one thing. And we said, well, what's that? And he said, there's something here that sort of reminds me of people sitting in a rowboat and rowing and rowing and rowing with great sincerity and earnestness, but refusing to untie the boat from the dock. (laughs) And he said, all these people here, they want like these great transcendent experiences and these amazing altered states of consciousness, but they don't really want to pay attention to how they talk to one another, you know, or how they are 
at work or with their families. And he said, it's got to be all one thing, you know. Our lives are really seamless. It doesn't work to tell lies all week long and then to sit all day on Saturday, you know, and think that that's not going to hurt in some way. It is, you know, because our lives are all of one piece. So out of compassion for ourselves and for others, we really look at the choices that we make and, and how we are with one another. And that's not to say that this is easy. You know, this um, can be extremely difficult. I mean, Mark said some things last night about the cockroaches, so I think I have to finish the story <laughs> in all honesty. Well, we had a terrible time with these cockroaches, and we tried everything. We tried so many things to make these cockroaches leave of their own volition. (laughs) And we had board meeting after board meeting and staff meeting after staff meeting about cockroaches. And I used to think, is there another nonprofit organization in the entire country that is meeting again and again and again about their cockroaches? And we called Zen centers on the West Coast, and we... You know, we saw an ad one day in the paper for a, I don't know what you'd even call it. It was like a spiritual pest control company (laughs) where these, like, deeply spiritual people would come. And, of course, you paid them quite a bit to come, but they would come and talk to the cockroaches and have them leave. So we hired them, you know, and then... One day I thought, well, we're deeply spiritual people, too. We can talk to our own cockroaches, you know. We don't have to pay anybody to come in here. And their talking didn't work, and our talking didn't work. And there came the day when, you know, sad to say, and it is really sad, we made the choice to kill the cockroaches. We said, this has got to stop. And the longer we let it go on, the more beings we will have to kill. Um, this is really terrible. So I don't say that proudly, you know. Um, But it it sort of ties into this other story that I have about this time that uh, Joseph and I went to teach somewhere in a... It was a spiritual community somewhere else in the country. And we walked into their very beautiful meditation hall, and they had flypaper everywhere, you know, which is absolutely disgusting. And we said, you've got to take the fly paper down. And they said, well, we can't. We have this terrible fly problem, which was true. <laughs> um, these really annoying, biting flies. And, um, but what was so sad was that there was not a screen on a window. There was no repellent anywhere. And I realized it's so easy to kill. It's just so easy. We can do it unthinkingly, automatically. And how different that is from having the kind of consciousness of how one wants to live and engaging in the struggle, which means one's values are actually alive. So uh, a path that has morality as 
its foundation is actually very alive. It's not something just uh, codified and, and rigid. It's something that demands our continual looking and trying and the development of compassion at all times. We see so many times when we have choices, and it's not a question of self-condemnation or degradation. You know, I use the example today in, in this group about you know, those times you might be sitting with somebody and this really, really nasty piece of knowledge about somebody else comes up in your mind and you can just feel the temptation to disclose it. And if you can be mindful enough, you can actually feel that urge and stop a moment to consider what would be the benefit of this person actually thinking so badly about this other person? Would there be a benefit? Wouldn't that be kind of sad? What would be the benefit to me past those first few moments of thinking, I know something you don't know, and I'm about to tell you what it is. Isn't that person horrible? It doesn't mean we hate ourselves for that impulse or that we think we're terrible for its arising. But we can be clear about what we care about more than anything. The gift of mindfulness is actually that we do have choice in many arenas where we once did not. Very terrible feelings may come up, but we can, first of all, see them more quickly, see them more clearly, see them with the kind of spaciousness we've developed or are developing in practice, and make some choices. Not about what will arise, but about how we'll respond to it. You think about all those times, you know, when maybe you get kind of angry and you don't even realize that you're angry. And, you know, nowadays one just like zips off to the computer and writes out an email and presses send. And maybe two hours later or three hours later you think, whoops, (laughs) I guess I was really angry. That was sort of hostile. I don't think I'm going to get what I want. There were a thousand better ways of saying that. And then those of you who use AOL as a server know it's like this little secret teaching that if the recipient of your email is also on AOL and they haven't read it yet, you can press this magic button called unsend. And something happens. I ah, see. <laughs> something happens. I don't know exactly what, but it's like something in your computer reaches out <laughs> to their computer and pulls back. And it's like it never was. You know, so you realize how inappropriate you were, unskillful you were, how angry you were. You run to your computer to check. Maybe they haven't read it yet. Of course, they've always read it. They've always, always read it. Now, it's not a small thing to know what we're feeling as we're feeling it instead of two hours later or four hours later. It's really a very important skill. 
So that's the foundation. It's that opening to having our life be really the vehicle for our metta, for our compassion. And then there is concentration, which is the next whole kind of category of of the path that the Buddha laid out. Interestingly, um, it's taught that a certain ability to concentrate will help us not fall under the sway of what they call obsessive defilements. So it's like those torments of the mind that arise like a magnet and just feel so strong and so compelling. To have, and it's clear, it's almost like common sense, really. If we have a certain, almost like a core stability, you know, that ground will give us a place to rest no matter what is coming up. And so it's not like being pulled by all of these different thoughts, however strong they are, or desires. It doesn't mean, again, that they don't come. But there is much more that sense of being here, being present, being cohesive, being grounded. And we see them. But it is much more that sense of seeing them instead of becoming them, instead of being swept away. So that's the power of concentration. It does give us a kind of ground. It does give us stability or steadiness, steadfastness. And again, it's not in a a rigid, um, enclosed, cut-off kind of way. But in, in that sense of being right here, being in touch. And so we actually practice the force of concentration because it's a force. And then the, the third and final sort of whole section of um, that path that the Buddha laid out to happiness is is wisdom or understanding. It's seeing things as they are. It's knowing from within the nature of anger or hatred. It's knowing from within the nature of love or compassion. It's seeing change all of the time knowing that change also means possibility. It means openness. It means there's no need to be stuck. There's no need um, to have a sense of being stuck in a rut. As long as there's change, there's life. There's that movement. There's that flow. There's that openness. And we can use that understanding as we actually look at our experience. If the problem is not in wanting to be happy, but in not knowing where happiness is to be found, this is our big chance. 
to pay attention to really understand our experiences from within. You know, when the Buddha said something like, um, hatred will never cease by hatred, hatred will only cease by love, that makes sense on a certain level intellectually. And when we are lost in hatred, whether it's toward ourselves or, or towards someone else, and we look at the nature of that experience, it makes a whole other kind of sense because we've lived it and we see the consequences of those different mind states. When we talk about anger and fear being the same state, as is the case in the Buddhist psychology, you know, what does that mean? What does it look like from within? You look at questions like, how do we learn, actually? When we're with the breath, say, if you're doing that meditation, and your mind wanders, perchance, it goes somewhere else. How do we learn? What inspires us to come back? You know, is it a litany of judgment? You are the biggest idiot in this room. You're always thinking. Or is it something else? We pay attention. We understand from within. What moves us, what inspires us, what's onward leading, what's limiting, what holds us back, what creates more fear. The wisdom or or the... um, Insight that's talked about is sometimes called, um, it's like a self-generated wisdom, which isn't meant to imply either, you know, terrible aloneness or, or great ego, but it's the understanding that we're not getting it from anybody else. It's something that we see, we pay attention to, we understand to the best of our ability. And so our own lives become not just as as a kind of cliche, but in truth become all these different opportunities to learn, to understand. I often wondered, um, you know, when they say so often in, in the Buddhist teaching that um, he said attachment is the cause of suffering, I always used to think, how do you figure that out? And then I had the thought one day, maybe he was really attached, and he looked at it, and he saw into its nature. Wow, look at that. This is the face of suffering, really. All of that clinging and wanting and holding on and trying to be in control. That's an amazing thing. But how do we see that? We see it from paying attention. And the way we pay attention means that we can't be judging it all the time because if we're judging it all the time, we're holding on or we're pushing away or our view is clouded over and we're not going to see the truth of something. So no matter what our experience is, pleasant, painful, neutral, there's something important to be learned. 
about ourselves, about happiness, about suffering, and all of that. That's another reason why there's no such thing as like the wrong experience or, or you know, a bad experience. Because even if it's painful, it can be very, very important. So that we can know, we can, we can know in truth how these things are. And we can know ourselves and, and the possibilities that abound. So we really try to pay attention. And it's all important. When we pay attention, we see so much more clearly where we're coming from, what we want, what's likely to happen based on what we want, where we're coming from, what our intention is, what our motivation is. And that reinforces our ability to make some very clear choices also in how we live. Now again, this sort of um, strong commitment to paying attention doesn't mean that we simply become passive and that we don't ever do anything because we're busy paying attention. And we we just stagnate where we are. But the clear seeing becomes the basis for acting with a kind of clarity and conviction. The actions that we take, you know, going back to what I said in that earlier talk, can come from the best intention that we can find within because we understand that will bring the greatest happiness to ourselves and to others. And we act in a way that is as wise as we can make it, paying attention to all the different circumstances that we see, doing the best we can to respond in a way that's authentic and, and intelligent as well as caring. It doesn't mean that we will be perfect or that we will be the sort of perfect um, image that we somehow try to project because life is life and we continually forget or our intention, which may be very pure, gets obscured by different things that happen in the moment and we forget. Or we can't trust that for whatever reason. We feel we couldn't possibly really want to go here and not there. There are all kinds of things that happen, but life is life. And we can always begin again. I mean, the great example of that kind of humility and love. for me, you know, as I said before, really is the Dalai Lama. And I'll, I'll close with two different Dalai Lama stories about imperfection. One was a long time ago. I don't know how long ago. Um, at least 10 years ago. I think, I think quite a bit more, probably more like 15. Um, when uh, His Holiness... The Dalai Lama was in Tucson um, teaching uh, using this text, Shanti Deva's um, 
Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, the chapter on patience. And the way the organizers had um, created this conference was um, they had the Dalai Lama teaching in the morning and the afternoon, and then they decided that they wanted Western Buddhist teachers to do the evening. So I was on for the first evening. Um, Sylvia Borstein and I were doing the first evening. And at that point, that was the largest group I'd ever spoken to. It was about 1,200 people or so. And I was kind of nervous. I thought, oh, you know. I'm like, but I did it. It was over. And then I was so glad it was the first evening because I thought it's done, you know. Now I can just sit here and listen to the teachings for the rest of the time. It would be great. Um, you know, and the days went on, and the Dalai Lama was teaching. And the way he was doing it was he'd read from the text uh, and give some commentary. And then as it was being translated, he would flip ahead to the next passage that he was going to read and comment on. And, and one day, several days after I had spoken, um, he was doing that, and something in what the translator said just caught his attention. And he looked up and he said, that's not what I said. And, and the translator said, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's what the text says. And, and the Dalai Lama said, no, it's not. And the translator said, yes, it is. And they kind of went back and forth with each other. Um, and finally, the Dalai Lama flipped back to the passage that was in dispute. And he burst out into this really hearty laugh, like, ha, 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 I made a mistake. <laughs> and I thought, look at that. <laughs> you know, if I'd made a mistake in front of those same 1,200 people a few nights before, first of all, would, have I, would I have admitted it? Probably not. And if I had been forced to, would I have laughed about it? Probably not. <laughs> you know, but it was such a beautiful moment. Ha, 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 I made a mistake. There it is. So much more recently, I went to Toronto, uh, where the Dalai Lama was uh, doing the Kala Chakra initiation, um, which is an 11-day, quite elaborate um, teaching and ritual. And uh, in the mornings, it was quite beautiful. He would be up on the stage doing his own practice. And so if you were there, sitting in the audience, it was kind of like your morning of meditation with the Dalai Lama, which was really fabulous. And then in the afternoons, he would do the teaching and, and do the, um, the ritual. And he liked to begin the afternoons by, in a sort of ecumenical spirit, by having uh, people from different traditions of Buddhism chant. And he would usually arrange it uh, kind of according to the chronological spread of Buddhism throughout the world, so starting with the Theravadan tradition, which is actually the tradition we practice here, of um, the Buddhism found in Southeast Asia, countries like Burma and Thailand, and then moving through Northern Asia and, and so on. And and one day there was even a rabbi in there. I don't know how he got in there, but um, you know that's how the afternoons would start. And um, the first afternoon they did that, the representatives of the Theravadan tradition uh, were a Western monk and a Western nun who did like the chanting you're doing in the morning, you know, and um, and some more extended chants than that. 
And then they went on, and there was somebody from Korea and China, you know, and, and all these different countries. So the next day, again in the afternoon, they're about to do all of this in that same order, and for some reason the monk wasn't there, and there was just this Western woman there. So imagine this scene. You're in front of 7,000 people, the Dalai Lama is sitting right behind you, and you're singing out loud. It's like a nightmare. <laughs> you know? And so it is. It's like a bad dream. You know? So this poor woman, it's like her voice is all quivery, you know, and shaking. And she's making, like, a tremendous number of mistakes, you know, which if you know, as I knew, you know, being from that same tradition, the things you're supposed to chant three times, she was chanting just once. And the things you're supposed to say once, she was getting in the wrong order, and, you know, and, like, finally it was done. Um, and then the other representatives of the different countries, you know, different lineages went on. So then at the end of all that, the Dalai Lama said, <clears throat> I'd like to thank everyone who chanted, especially that nun. He said she did a really beautiful job. He said, it's not easy to chant all alone. And he went on to say, I had to do that once. I went to Japan, and they asked me to chant the Heart Sutra. And I made so many mistakes. It's like I made up a new Heart Sutra. <laughs> and then he looked at her and he said, perhaps you did too. <laughs> you know? And it was so beautiful. It was so kind and so sweet. And she came up to me, because we, we knew each other. She came up to me later in the audience, and she was radiant. It was like someone had lit her up from within. She was so radiant. And, and she said to me, do you want to chant with me tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, no, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I really don't. But it was also like such a beautiful moment, you know. It's not sort of trying to pretend it was okay. But at the same time saying, oh, I made all these mistakes once too, you know. This is how we are. And wasn't it beautiful? You know, she did it all alone, and she came through. Okay, well, in that spirit, let's sit together for a few minutes. This talk was given by Sharon Salzberg at Insight Meditation Society on February 16, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.